Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. All right, so tonight we're going to be studying Jonah chapter 3, so get your Bibles out. Turn to chapter 3, and let's pray. Lord, we are hungry for you. We need you tonight. We are we are thirsty for living water, Lord. We are hungry for righteousness. And we are needing strength in all things that you, by the Holy Spirit, would give us. So I just pray, Lord, tonight that you would anoint our time as we study your word. Lord, give me a mouth with which to speak it, Lord. And not by power, nor by might, but by the Spirit, Lord. We want to hear and study and listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonah chapter 3. As I've mentioned before, the book of Jonah, he's a prophet, he's an evangelist, he's an escape artist. He's all over the map, literally. And I'm just going to jump right into chapter 3 here because it says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, for those of you who have been in the class, you know that the last two chapters have been somewhat tumultuous. We've had Jonah receive God's word at the beginning, he heard it, he ignored it, he ran away. He got into a shipwreck or a ship storm, sorry. They threw him overboard and then he ends up in a whale or a, a, a giant fish. And then he has this incredible prayer of repentance and remembrance. And, and now here he is and the Lord has spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. And it begins, as soon as he is vomited out, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I've been pointing this out in, in a number of ways about the nature of the Lord. The, the nature of the Lord is always better, more magnificent, more beautiful, more more. more nuanced, more powerful than any of the ways of man. And here we see one of the most glorious things about the Lord. And if you know him, you know this about him. He is the God of how many chances? How many chances does he give you and me in our lives? (laughs) I've seen the Lord give me third and fourth and fifth 18th, 19th, 23rd, 24th, 32nd, 33rd, probably into the hundreds of chances when I have turned away and turned aside. This is such an amazing mercy of the Lord that he is a God of second chances. It's amazing also because you notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, now, hey, Jonah, let's talk about that time in the whale. Well, let's, let's talk about that time when you were 
when you were struggling. He doesn't, he doesn't go to Jonah and start dredging up his past. He doesn't say, hey, we need to talk about what happened before. I would do that as a dad with my son. If he, if he did something, I would say, sit down, son. <laughs> Let's go over this again. Let's talk about what happened. And in certain ways, that's, that's an important thing to do in raising children. But it's important to know that he does not do that. He sends his word to him a second time. And it's the same thing. Look back at the first verse of the first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And whereas in verse 3 it says, But Jonah arose to flee. Here at the beginning of chapter 3 it says, After arise, go to Nineveh, that, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went. And that's the second thing I want to speak on in this opening couple of verses is this, this arise and go. The listening and the following of the voice of the Lord is really a matter of Jonah and just the same for you and me, trusting not only the voice of the Lord and his instructions, because you can, you can, obey an instruction, but not know the character behind it, right? If you have a new boss at work and they tell you to go do something, you can obey it, but you don't know if they have motivations that are askew or, 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 or something of selfishness about that. But you, we can always know this about the motivation of the Lord, the character of the Lord, because the character of the Lord is, again, so unique and so different. And his voice is also unique and different. And we have to put it in a different category than all the other voices that may be in your mind or maybe in your heart or maybe wandering through the, the waft of voices. You get a lot of voices that come speaking to you, right? Voices from the radio, voices of friends, voices of Facebook, social media, voices from here, voices from there. There's a lot of opinions out there. But the voice of the Lord comes with the character of the Lord. And I wrote this down as I was going through it, trusting the character of God to go along with the voice of the Lord. These are the things that set him apart. In John 10, 10, Jesus speaking said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's the nature of that voice. When that voice comes, it has a nature and a character behind it. And that character is all about stealing, killing, and destroying. But then he clarifies and he goes on and says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, when I think about life itself and then abundant life, that just draws me closer to who the Lord is because that's what I want. And I think that's what most people really want in their heart of hearts. They want an abundant life, a life that has meaning and, and purpose and, and joy and satisfaction, right? To be, able to, to be able to put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day and to say, you know, come what may, I, I, did, I did the best I could. I trust you with the rest. And then the gift of sleep is a beautiful thing. Is a beautiful thing. It's a simple thing, but it may be one of the most beautiful and peaceful things that, that humans can experience. 
This also comes along with that Psalm 1611, which says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You ever see a, a child with like a new toy in their hand? They're just, they're just fascinated about it. And they don't just look at it from one angle. They usually kind of turn and they look at it from the side and they look at it from the top. And they're just, they're fascinated, they're fascinated with every part of it, every, every facet of the toy. They're looking at this angle, looking at that angle. And I think sometimes we need to remember to, to appreciate and enjoy this idea of in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Like every aspect and facet of the Lord is a pleasure for you and me. The pleasure of, of escaping from sin. The, the pleasure of knowing joy. The pleasure of being provided for food and money and finance. There are so many pleasures in the hand of the Lord. His hand is just full of pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And I just think to myself, for Jonah having gone through all that stuff that he went through, or maybe whatever things you're going through today, that this is so important that he, he remembers the character of the Lord as he's going through and now as, as he's obeying the Lord to remember the Lord would only want more pleasures for me, more fullness, more abundant life. He doesn't want to take away from you. He always wants to add to you. And even if he's causing you to walk through a season or a time where there is some winnowing, some maybe some, some scraping away of things that maybe you don't want to want to give up, it's never, it's never to reduce you. It's to fill you. It's so that you will have more hours of the day that are more full of his love and his truth. It's never to reduce you. It's always to fill you. And so Jonah departs on this second journey, and who knows what's going through his head, but I'll tell you what, it's a long distance that he's going to have to go in order to take this trip. So when the fish spits him out onto dry land, the fish would have been in the Mediterranean Sea because he was going out to Tarshish, which was completely to the east, as you can see on the map there, to the left. Nineveh is up to the right. So when the, the fish spits him out on the dry land, unless, and it, the text doesn't tell us, unless the fish spit him approximately 560 miles, which, you know, we're dealing with the God of miracles, so that's, that is actually possible. I don't think it's probable, though, because I think the Lord wanted him to go through the process of actually going, just like he would have done at the beginning. So he has to travel 500, probably about 560 miles from the nation of Israel or somewhere along that coast to get to Nineveh. That's a lot of desert. How did he get there? Did he walk? We're not told in the text. Did he take a, a camel? Hopefully, maybe a friend of his had a camel. I don't know. What was his attitude along the way? I can only hope that his attitude was one of going back and remembering the true nature of the Lord. So he finally goes to Nineveh. He finally agrees to go where the Lord has told him to go. The word of the Lord has come to him a second time. Arise, go. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. 
And he has two hard things to do that he's been given charge to do. The first is he has to travel a very long way, which I just spoke of. And I want to mention this. Following the Lord requires a lot of hard work. It is not easy to follow the Lord. I remember, I remember a wonderful teaching that was talking about, well, there's, there's actually there's two teachings that come to mind. One is when, uh, when the camels had to be watered by Rebecca before she became the wife of Isaac. There was a servant that went and she, he asked, he said at the well, Lord, provide for me a wife for Isaac. And Rebecca came, he said, and make sure that she's the kind of woman that doesn't only offer me a drink, but also a wa- offers a drink for the camels. Now, that sounds like, oh, it's a simple task if you've ever, you know, given water to a, a, a pet. It's not a big deal. But a camel can hold up to like 200 gallons of water. So for her to take a pitcher and to, for 10 camels to be able to do that much water pouring would have taken hours, maybe even half a day. I think of another situation in the Bible where Jesus is at the wedding at Cana. And he tells the people who are there before the miracle happens, hey, fill up these water, these, these water containers that are there. And they were purification containers. And it seems, again, in the text, like a very simple detail. It says, and they did it. But how long did it take for them to do it? They didn't have spigots. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They would have had to go and fill up something maybe from, from a river or for some, some, some aqueduct nearby and fill every one of them to the brim. They would have been sweating it's hard work. And following the Lord and doing this kind of, this, this work for Jonah to get there, I think is a big part of what the Lord is trying to teach him. And it's a good thing for us to also observe within the text. Now, one more thing about this issue of, of, of hardness of work. And I, I really thought about this a lot as I was studying this chapter. Was it harder for Jonah to run away or for him to run toward God? Right? When we read in the first chapter about him, him, him escaping and arising and fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he goes to Joppa, he gets onto a ship, he pays the fare. It seems like it's a pretty simple process. And, and, but what about this now, this 560 miles he has to go? That seems like a little bit harder journey. And let me, let me turn the question on you guys. Is it harder for you to run away from God or to run toward him? If there's something about coming to the Lord and and following the things he's told you to do, and you have either a grumbling spirit about it, or perhaps you just find yourself kind of chafing at the bit, so to speak. You ever see like a horse when they have put a bit in its mouth and they just, they really don't want that. And they kind of like, you know, kind of like that. Is that how we are sometimes when the Lord tells us to do something? We're just kind of biting at the bit the whole time? A question for us to consider. There is hard work involved in following the Lord. There just always will be. It's a better thing to get used to that and to get used to the diet of that than to always expect that it's going to be easy street because it's just not. So that's the first thing. The first hard thing is the, is, is the work that required, is required of Jonah to go to Nineveh, to get there, to travel, to be on these, these roads or these places of desert. The second thing, which I personally think would be even harder for him, and maybe this is harder for you too, is he had to preach. But he had to preach God's message, not his own message. Notice what it says here in the text. Arise, go to Nineveh, verse 2, that great city, and preach to it 
the message that you want to say. No, 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 it doesn't say that. And preach to it the message that you heard from some televangelist. Nope, doesn't say that either. Preach to it the message that I tell you. There's a great study of Oswald Chambers where he talks about the issue of going on a fast. And he says, for the preacher or the teacher, the fast for them is not a fast of food, but a fast of words. And truly, there is something here that is important both for the preacher or the teacher as well as for the congregation. For the pastor or the teacher, the, 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 the difficulty is not to insert yourself into the text, but it's to simply preach and teach the text for what it is, that fasting that I referenced before. Simply teach the word simply is the motto of this church. And it's because we want to stay behind what is true and what is of the Lord and not put ourselves into it. But it goes further than that for the congregation, for those of you listening, for those of you who then take this word and have to do something with it in your, in your life and to do something with it in, in giving it to other people. You also have this responsibility of God's message, not your own. When God tells you to speak a word to someone around you, you know the moment the Lord says, hey, them, or hey, her. And then you go, hey, how about not today? <laughs> or you know what's going to be required to be spoken, and you're like, I really don't want to say that. It's so easy and so tempting for us to become people who want to take what the Lord gives us, the word he gives us, and to turn it into something else. Right? Whether we want to like water it down, make it not quite as hard when it's, when it's a hard word, or maybe we don't want to deliver it to somebody because we think they're going to be offended by it. This is an important thing that we, we, we have to understand and wrestle with this. That we are supposed to speak what the Lord gives us when he gives it to us. Not later, not before, then and then whatever it is. Guys, all of life is about seeds and planting. My, my daughter came home from school this last week, and she has this little cup. She was so excited she came home. She had a little cup full of soil. And they're learning in her kindergarten class about planting seeds. Well, we put water on that thing. We put it in the, the, uh, the, in the window, you know. Let it get a little bit of sun. Let it get a little bit of, of water. Nothing happens for a day. Two days. Nothing happens. I'm thinking, did the teacher actually put a seed in there? Did she just give her? Because <laughs> like, I wasn't digging around there. I was, like, I was like, maybe she didn't put the seed in yet, or maybe the seed's bad. Because you can have bad seeds, right? Well, three or four days later, we look there in the morning, and there's just a little bit of soil that's poked up out of that cup. Cutest little thing, right? And we go and we tell her, little Addison, we're like, look at your plant. She comes right into the window. Oh, today that plant is about four inches tall and there are actually two of them budding. All of life is about seeds. And when you throw out God's word, you're throwing out seeds. 
But the issue is you and I don't know when they're going to sprout up. And so we doubt it, don't we? Haven't you ever given the word to somebody and they were like that soil that was just sitting there, soggy? (laughs) Maybe the seed's bad, you think. This seed is never bad. And it always sprouts when it's supposed to. And the plants grow when they grow. You have no control over it. Just like us waiting for that thing to happen. But know this. If you don't continue to pour out seeds, well, think about it if you had a field and you just stopped putting seeds in it. What would happen to that field over time? The weirdest plants would begin to grow there that weren't planted by you, right? Weeds and things would take over. Wild animals, all kinds of stuff would happen. But if the seeds are continually dropped into the soil, if they're given the chance to grow, eventually good plants will come. And the same is true for you and me. We have to remember to keep giving what the Lord gives us for certain people at certain times and trust his word to just be enough. You don't have to be more eloquent than just saying what it says. The gospel is one of the most simple messages that could ever be given to mankind. Simple, simple, simple. Keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. And even if the person may be not ready in that moment, the seed will sit until the time that it's supposed to go. But trust God's word. So these are the two hard things that Jonah had to do when he received the word of the Lord the second time. And again, I want to emphasize, he was given another chance and now he's going for it, but he still has a lot of hard work to do. He has to preach God's message, not his own. And he has to travel a very long way. Now it tells us here at the end of verse three, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Now, Not only was the trip to Assyria and to Nineveh 560 miles from Israel, but also the city itself of Nineveh was a large city. And you have to know a little bit about the archaeological evidence of Assyria and Nineveh in order to understand this. First of all, they did excavations of Nineveh by Sir Austin Layard in 1845, and they found that the city proper was basically 2.5 by 1.3 miles. It was actually in the shape of what's almost like a trapezoid. But when they talk about Assyria, this, uh, sorry, when they talk about Nineveh, the great city, what they're referring to is Nineveh plus the surrounding cities that would have connected with it. A good example of, of thinking of this in our modern terms is the, there's Los Angeles and then there's greater Los Angeles, right? The greater Los Angeles area is enormous. Even here in Naples, there's old Naples. We call it old Naples, right? There's actually a little city of Naples and the rest of us live, generally speaking, not in that little city. There's the greater Naples or Collier County area. So when it's talking about Nineveh, that great city, it's referring to that more in that metropolitan area. Now that would have included two other cities, a city named Kala to the south and a city just to the north that also attached to it called Corsabad. And these, these three cities in all circumference would have been 27 miles. So when it talks here in the text about a three-day three journey in extent, they were talking about this entire area. So that has to do it with more with just for, so, so that we understand this. 
And before we get into exactly what Jonah's preaching and what began to happen as he arrived in Nineveh, I want to just give you a brief history. Um, this picture that you see here, this gate, is a gate that exists in modern day, or at least it did until about 10 years ago. These are the gates to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a city that was actually, we read about in the book of Genesis. If you want to turn with me actually there, turn to Genesis chapter 10, and you'll know and understand here what I mean. Genesis chapter 10. Actually, going back to verse 8, we, 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 uh, we read about a character named Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod in verse 8 of chapter 10, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And by the way, that is mostly a reference to the fact that he was not like, like a good hunter, but, but actually kind of against the things of the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, verse 10, was Babel. You guys remember that name? Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. So this city, and it goes on Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala. Now, so Nineveh has quite the history of not being a godly place whatsoever, at least not godly in terms of the God of the Bible. And these walls actually existed uh, here in Nineveh. And this is, of course, from Nineveh in its heyday, which would have been the, the time that we're talking here, around the 750s BC, okay, 750 years before the time of Christ. And these walls stayed there, as well as a lot of amazing archaeological finds, until guess who rolled into the city about 10 years ago? ISIS. And you know what they did? They destroyed so much. They destroyed partial, partial, these portions of these walls that were still there from Nineveh. From 750 BC, these walls remained. Now, imagine those walls there. Imagine Jonah, right? This is what he's coming up to, right? What has Jonah been through as he approaches this with this word of the Lord that he's supposed to speak? He's run away, thrown out of a ship, into, into a giant fish, vomited into land, right? Probably covered with, at, at best, gastric juices. Smelly, probably disfigured a little bit. And then he approaches an amazing gate. And now he has to speak the message that the Lord gives him. And in verse 4, we read how this now begins. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So it would have taken three days to get the entire city. In fact, I was thinking about this. How long would it take you and I just to kind of quote unquote evangelize all of greater Naples? Three days would seem like not nearly enough time. Well, we'll see what, what the Lord does with this, with this process. So he began to enter the city on the first day's walk and he cried out and said... God loves you so much. No. He said, hey, you guys are good people. And no. What did Jonah say? What was his message to the Ninevites? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Certainly there's got to be more than that, right? 
Certainly there has to be something of, of, of you know, repentance or love or something. Why is this the message that the Lord gives him to tell them? Well, let's get back to that whole issue of planting seeds. If the Lord tells you to tell someone, hey, if you keep that up, it's going to go bad for you. That's the same message. And if that person is ready to hear that, that message is as clear and wonderful and refreshing to them as the gospel. Because you're telling them in that moment when you probably don't want to say those words, because I've been in those situations where you're like, it's in there, it's like it's on your tongue, and you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, you know? Like, like your flesh is like, I don't want to. I don't want to say this to them. I, I don't, they're not going to take it well. You're like you have that whole thing in your head, right? But if, if they're ready to hear it and the Lord is telling you to say it, that's exactly what they need. It's exactly what they need. And I'll say this just real quickly about the issue of judgment. Because this is really what this is. is this is a statement of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's a difference between judgment and being judgmental. Let me explain. Judgment is simply a proclamation of truth about what will happen. Okay? Judge, being judgmental or judgmentalism is when you're constantly assessing someone's behavior or their, their tone or whatever, and you're basically cutting them down at the knees. That's what it means to be judgmental. But judgment in and of itself is not a bad thing. Now, you would, you would not think that if you listen to our contemporary culture who would do everything that in their power to keep you quiet from speaking about any number of things that are wrong and improper and immoral and just straight up crazy that are going on in our world. And trust me, there are a lot of things. You'll note I'm not going to go into preaching on those because I think you probably know what those things are. But judgment is not the same as being judgmental. And here's why. People recognize, even if they don't like it at first, they recognize if you're willing to speak the truth to them. They may not recognize it for months or weeks or even years when, after you speak it, but they will recognize that, hey, that was the truth. There's this interesting thing that happens with, with children. I don't know if you've noticed this, this issue of children and guilt. I remember when this, this, one of the first couple times this happened when I was raising my son, Ryan. And he did something, and he knew it was wrong. I forget what it was. And I came to him, and I, I corrected him. And I thought, man, I'm coming down hard on him, and he's going to be upset with me, and it's going to strain our relationship. And yes, he was a little upset. But I'll tell you the most amazing thing was about five to ten minutes later, I'm in my office, and he comes barreling in there, you know? And he's like, Dad, do you still love me? Yeah, of course I love you. And he gave me the biggest hug. 
Because here's the thing about, about when you feel guilty about something, there's no greater trap for the human soul and heart than feeling guilty. When you feel guilty, man, it's like no matter what you do, you feel like you're in a jail cell. You can try to escape that doing this and that and this and that. And trust me, people do all the time. They have a feeling of guilt. And, but what they really want is to be free of the guilt. And when you confess and when you ask forgiveness, that's where the freedom comes. Freedom comes by confession. And so when, when my son came to me, what he was really saying was, Dad, thanks for getting me out of the cage of my guilt. Is that not the same thing that Jesus has done for you and me? He's like, I just want to let you out of the cage. I know you're guilty. I want to provide you with the forgiveness so that you don't have to stay in that cage a minute longer. And why is it that we love the Lord? Why is it that we love Jesus so much? Because he's the one who got us out of that cage of guilt. There's this beautiful psalm about a bird. And there's this character in the psalm called the fowler. The fowler is a character who catches birds and puts them in a cage. And the psalmist says of this this bird, he says, and we, like the bird in the cage, and I'm paraphrasing here, have escaped the hand of the fowler. The hand of that who captures and puts birds in cages. And we, like a bird, have escaped that's salvation. That's trusting Jesus Christ. It's salvation of, of freedom to be escaping from guilt. And I think that's what was going on here in Nineveh. And I'll talk a little bit more about what was going on culturally in just a moment. The second thing, though, is this. When Jonah's preaching this, is, this issue, and notice he says very specifically, yet 40 days. Let's talk about that. Why would that have been significant? Well, let's look at it. Historically, in the Bible, this idea of 40 days was a very important thing. Now, we are in, we are in Nineveh, but this is still the Near East. And I'm going to go back to the map here just so we can see it. There we are. So, we have Israel to the left here, and then we have, up to the far right, we have Nineveh. And all that is what we call the Near East, right? We have, just to the north, modern-day Turkey, to the south, modern-day uh, uh, Israel, and then below that would be the beginning of the nation of Africa, off to the left. To the right, we have Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran. And those are the nations now that are, are in this area known as Mesopotamia, the Euphrates River, the Tigris River. By the way, the word Mesopotamia means the land of two rivers. It always has to do with the land geographically of the Tigris and the Euphrates, okay? But it's been taken over by many nations over time. So Mesopotamia is the most kind of generic term for this nation. And now I've completely forgot where I was going with that before that. What was it saying? Oh, yes, 40 days. So this area would have known the things that have happened before. And let me just talk to you about a few things that had happened historically about 40 days up until this point. Again, we're in 750 BC. A lot of history has happened in this area. First of all, the flood of the entire world, as recorded in Genesis 7 and 8, it flooded and rained for 40 days and 40 nights. People would have known that 
all over the world. In fact, I recently went to the Creation Museum and then I went to the Ark uh, that was rebuilt in Kentucky. And they have these amazing uh, stories from all over the world of flood accounts. The accounts of the flood in China and the flood accounts in this part of the world and the flood accounts in this part of the world. And they all talk about very interesting similarities. The idea of 40 days would have been known upon the earth very strongly as something of judgment of the Lord. When Moses was given the law, he was up on the mount for 40 days receiving that law. You're like, oh, it's just the Ten Commandments. It should have taken like 15 minutes to write down. No, there was a lot more law that had to be given him while he was up there than just the Ten Commandments. He was up there with the Lord 40 days. When the, when the spies went into the land and they, and they were spying out to, to take over the land of Canaan, they spied the land for 40 days. So this idea of 40 days was an idea that would have been known to them as idea of judgment and also movement. That the Lord would have been moving and doing great things during a period of 40 days. Now, interestingly enough, Goliath also taunted the nation of Israel for 40 days. This is, of course, after this time. Ezekiel is laid on his side for 40 days to talk about the judgment that would come upon them. And Jesus was tempted in the desert for how long? Yes, <laughs> 40 days. That's right. Interestingly enough, after Jesus came back on the earth in his resurrection, this is the last 40 day thing that I could find in the Bible. He was on the earth for 40 days before his ascension. It's almost as though, and I'm kind of reading somewhat into the text here, but it's almost as though he was saying, and that's the end of God's judgment. At least as far as Jesus is concerned in coming to Jesus. Now, they heard this message. He comes into the city. He comes into those gates that I showed you, the gates of Nineveh. And he preaches to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let me tell you a little bit about what was going on with the Ninevites and the Assyrians. Again, the mid-700s BC. First of all, the nation was in a period of dip, of decline. It had had its, its probably its heyday about 50 to 100 years just before this. And at this time, there was a king. His name was Asurdan III. He, was, he reigned from 773 to 756 BC. But... Assyria was a big empire, and there were a lot of provincial governors that were also taking over the portions of the land around Assyria. So they were not like a united nation at this point. Secondly, June 15th, 763 BC, there was an eclipse that happened. And this was known, especially in the old world, as being a sign of judgment or at least an omen. They, they really paid attention to astrological signs because they didn't have all the distractions that we do, Right? Well, I mean, even, to, even in our day, when there is an eclipse, especially a solar eclipse, the whole world kind of stops for a few minutes and goes, wow, that's pretty interesting. So there was an eclipse that happened in, 750, in 763. There was also another one that was in 784. You're reading into that a little bit. The idea is that the Ninevites would have been like, something's going on. There was also incredible cruelty and violence within them as a culture. There is a, one of their kings from, again, from the heyday, about 100 years earlier, Asher Nasirpal. I think I got that. I'm not quite sure. Let me try that one more time. Asher Nasirpal. He ruled from 884 to 859 BC. And this is a quotation from him. 
in his warring. I captured many troops alive. I cut off the arms and hands of some. I cut off the noses, ears, and extremities of others. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city, and I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. This is way beyond just war. This is cruelty. And there's a difference, isn't there? Cruelty. In fact, turn with me. There are other biblical records about the cruelty of the Assyrians and the Ninevites. Turn to the book of Nahum and just read the first verse in Nahum. It's just a few verses after, uh, like two books later in Nahum. It says this, and this is the topic of the entire book of the prophet of Nahum. Anybody here read the prophet of Nahum? You will after tonight, hopefully. Go read it. It says, and this is the opening line of that the whole book is about the burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. It's all about God's perspective and looking upon what the Ninevites did. Now, I wish I could tell you, because we're, we're about to talk about the, the repentance of the Ninevites. I wish I could tell you that it, it, it lasted forever. It did not. Also in the book of uh, Amos and also Hosea, there are records of the wickedness of Nineveh. Again, I would recommend that you read through the book of Nahum because it's a pretty explicit description of their flagrant sins, cruelty, plunder and war, witchcraft, and commercial exploitation. Now again, back to the text of Jonah here. He preaches this simple message of God's judgment, straight and to the point, 40 days and the city will be overthrown, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what is the response? What would you expect if you gave that message to a friend or a group of people or yet an entire city? And we find out later there was 120,000 people within this, this kind of multiplex. Imagine in your mind, if you hadn't read the next verse, if you haven't read it yet, just imagine in your mind, what do you think they're going to do? Now remind, remind yourself. This was not Jonah's idea. And the same thing is true when the Lord gives you a word to share with somebody else. It's not your idea. It's his idea. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows who needs to hear it. He knows the timing of those things as well. Look what happens. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's astounding. After, after reading of all that cruelty, after all that stuff that they had gone through and, and done to other people, the people of Nineveh believed God. And it went beyond that. Notice the, that he doesn't say, and they believed Jonah. <laughs> they heard that this was a voice beyond Jonah. Now, also, you can, you can imagine, if, if Jonah had been, it was spit out of that whale again, he may have looked so frightening that people paid more attention to him because of the disfigurement. And maybe he was exactly exhausted from traveling 560 miles and, you know, covered again with the, with the juices of a whale, gastric juices of a whale. I'm sorry, I kind of like to say that word, gastric juices. I'm sorry, it's just, there's something about it. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. It has a certain je ne sais quoi. But they believed God. And it went beyond that. They proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth 
from the greatest to the least of them. And I want to break this down. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's the first thing. And then they proclaimed a fast. They showed remorse. And they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was like basically really tattered clothing that you would put on as a sign of mourning. Usually people would wear sackcloth when a loved one had died. You think of today, people wearing black. Sometimes you'll see people wearing black because they're usually mourning the death of a child or a spouse. It would be the equivalent to sackcloth. And without social barrier, from the greatest to the least, they responded this way. And what I was really struck about in this text was this, is that they did this before the king or any leadership responded. And I wanted to kind of put this out to you because I think this is important, especially talking about the church body and how we function. You know, we, we, have, we have prayer nights, right? Where we get together and we pray. We, we have worship times on Sunday where we get together. But if the Lord tells you individually or you in your homes, hey, fast this day or hey, pray for that person. Your job is to do that whether or not we proclaim something from the pulpit or from the newsletter or whatever it is, your job is to do that because it's more important that you follow the Lord when he gives you a conviction or he gives you a word or he gives you a direction than to listen to me or someone else. The important thing is, is the word of the Lord, right? And the word that he gives. And so I think it's important. Do we wait for a, a preacher or a pastor to, to, to call on a group of people to call or to, to, to fast or to pray? You shouldn't. Just do it. So that's the, that, that's the people of, of Nineveh. And then we read in the, in, the, in the book that now the word came to the king of Nineveh, verse 6. And I don't know what that would have been like. Did, did, he, did he hear rumblings within the city? Did he see, like, like, did he look out from his palace or wherever he was and notice, man, there's a lot of people in sackcloth. There's a lot of people who are not eating food. What's going on here? Somehow the word came to him. And, and think of it this way also. If, if, a, if, if you're a king and you're ruling over people and they're doing something strange, oftentimes what will kings do? They'll try to cut that thing out, whatever it is. They're, they're afraid of uprising or rebellion. Again, the word of the Lord has power when the seeds of the word of the Lord are planted to transform kings. They're just people. They're just people with crowns and more power. So the Nineveh king now responds in verse 6, the word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe. What does that mean? The robe. It, it represents his, his elegance, his magnificence, his, his higher stature. And he says, he wants to just get rid of that. He laid aside his robe. He, the word comes to the king. He actually listens. And then he humbles himself and he lays aside his robe. And then it goes further than that. And he laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth. And then he made it even more challenging for him. And he sat in ashes. Get the ashes out of the fireplace. Gather them here. I'm going to sit in them as a place of remorse. These were people who were probably plagued with guilt, plagued with violence, plagued with sin. And I could only imagine that their culture was probably just one where they just increased in violence because they didn't have a way of repenting. They didn't have a way of turning around. They just, they were all going in one direction, the wrong direction. They were all going there together. 
And this word comes, it almost like gives them an excuse. Oh, let's, let's, let's finally turn from our ways. Let's finally be free of what we have done as a society. Pray that, pray that for America, guys. Pray that for our nation. Because our nation, it feels like it's like lemmings running off a cliff, doesn't it? It's like people just following after cra- the craziest ideas. Pray for our nation. Pray for our president. Pray, pray for the people who are in power to hear the word of the Lord. You can pray and get more done with a body of a legislature in, in, in Florida or in, in, in the National Assembly than you can by writing a letter. Because God's word has power. So he laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes. And then he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, and now it goes from outer remorse to inner remorse. And this is what was, was spoken there. Verse, verse 7b, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, no food. Do not let them eat or drink water. So now this, this is more than just a regular fast. This is like a fast and no water. That makes me thirsty even right now, <laughs> thinking about that. No water either. And not just for people, but for animals. He wanted the animals to feel the guilt and feel the need to, re- to, to repent and to turn. But let man and beast, verse 8, be covered with sackcloth and cry mildly to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There's, there's the outer signs of remorse, right? The sackcloth, the ashes, the laying aside of the robe. But you and I both know the most important remorse that has to happen in the issue of, of repentance and the issue of turning away from sin is inside. It has to become inner remorse for it to really bear fruit in a person's life. You and I, we need to have inner remorse. And that is what repentance is all about. Crying to God and turning away from an evil way. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to turn away from an evil way? Something that you're prone to do? Something maybe you're prone to say? Something you're, you're prone to, to think about? And you have to turn away. You have to literally have to pull the old classic 180. That's the only way. That's the only way to stop and, and to stop an evil way that occurs. He tells them to turn from the evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And that just tells us a little bit more about this culture, confirming those things that I shared with you before, that this was a culture of violence. They dealt with things with, with the fist. They dealt with things with anger. They dealt with things through sin. That's how it was. Probably a society of, of might makes right. Have you heard that expression? Might makes right. That, that's, a, that's a great way of describing almost every culture society where there's been one or two people from the top and they control everything because of one thing, the threat of taking a life. Now imagine if your entire culture was sown with that for year upon year upon year. You had to raise your children. And, and even if you wanted to train them in a different way, you'd be like, you know, they're, they're not even going to make it unless I train them. Have you ever felt that way? 
You ever feel like maybe you have to con- con- contribute to the ways of the world so that you don't get eaten? Have you ever had that thought? Or that you have to train people to be, hey, well, they got to be a little bit more tough in this so that they can handle it. I get that. I get that. But Jesus would have us be strong in him. Be strong in the Lord in order to resist the ways of the culture, not just give in to them. If, if there's something where you are tempted to give in to the ways of the culture, turn away. Turn away from that evil way. And then this last verse, which I just love, and this is kind of how we conclude this entire chapter. Now remember, this is the king telling and writing to the people, proclaiming this to the nation, to the city of Nineveh, to all of Assyria. He says this, this is his summation. Who can tell if God, now does he know the God of the Bible? We, we don't know, but all of a sudden he's talking to him as though he does. A judgmental word has come, and not a judgmental, a judgment word, excuse me, has come and he says, who can tell if God, this person Jonah speaks of, he doesn't know Jonah either. If God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then verse 10. Then God saw their works. That they turned from their evil ways, from their evil way, excuse me, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is 120,000 people that in one day, based on one sentence that was spoken by one prophet, had enough outer and inner remorse and true repentance. And they demonstrated it so clearly that God from heaven released his hand of judgment. As I was reading in a commentary, this is the biggest revival in the entire Bible. This is way bigger than even in the book of Acts. Right? You see like, oh, 3,000 were saved in one day. Great. But this is 120,000. <laughs> That's a lot more. Guess how many times more it is? 40. Interesting. You know, repentance. Let's talk about this as we close out tonight. Repentance. What does it mean? You've probably heard it preached. You've probably heard it spoken. But what does it actually mean? In the Greek, the word is metanoia which means to change your mind. Old dogs can't learn new tricks. You heard that before, right? Yes, they can. (laughs) Because it's not a trick. Old dogs can learn new truths. To change your mind. That's what was happening in them. They were saying, you know what? I'm deciding I'm making a decision. I'm not going to pursue this thinking. I'm not going to pursue this doing. I'm not going to pursue this way that I've gone. I'm going to go 180. 
They changed their minds. You may have to repent a hundred times in a day. But we all have to. It's one, of the, it's one of the marks of the Christian. The Christian comes to Christ with repentance. It's the only way to come to Jesus is repentance. You, you don't come to him because you got it all figured out. You come to him because you don't have it figured out. You need a savior. You need someone to get you out of the pit you're in. And so you turn to him. Now, the interesting thing about repentance for us is that there's this issue of repenting from and repenting to. Everybody has to repent from something, but what you have to repent from, which is sin, is going to be different as far as the sin proclivity to you and me. We don't suffer with the same sins, though there are many commonalities. There are certain sins that are easier for you to rule over and harder for me and easier for me, and harder for you. I don't know what they are, but you do because you live inside of your body, and you have your soul, and you have your heart, you have your upbringing, I have mine. We all have a responsibility to repent from, and turn away from, whatever that is. The Lord would be speaking to you right now through the Holy Spirit about what that is. He's, he's, he's going to make it very clear that's what he does. Now that's where we're all a little bit different. But we also have to all repent too. And that's where we all come back together. We all repent to the exact same person. You've probably heard it said, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross, right? When you, when you come to Jesus, we all come to the same Lord that with the same salvation that he offers. Every single one of us. It's not different. A drug dealer and a housewife, they repent from very different things, but they all have to repent. But what they repent to is the same, right? The sports player, the ballerina, they're going to repent from different things. I don't know why I picked those examples. (laughs) Ballerinas need to repent. There we go. But they repent to the same Lord. And I'll end with this. When you repent, when you turn from your evil ways, when you turn from your sin, when the thing that plagues you, be it lying lips or deceitfulness of heart, be it lust, be it selfish ambition, whatever it is, when you turn from it and you turn to Jesus, God does the same thing in your life that he does in this text. He relents from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it this way. For by grace you have been saved. This is graciousness in the Old Testament. This is straight up God being very gracious. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And do you realize in this text, there's no boasting going on in the people because they have nothing to boast over. And it's the same thing with you and me. We got, guys, we got nothing. We got nothing to boast over. We're saved from from damnation. 
We're saved from eternal separation. We're saved from our sin nature and the, the harm that it would cause us because of one thing. God is gracious. God is so gracious. In fact, he's so gracious, you've probably, you've probably had moments in your life where you're like, I wish you weren't as gracious because I wish you would have just stopped me from whatever it is and he, instead of him waiting for you to repent and, and turn. But he was gracious even then, wasn't he? That's his nature. And he can't betray himself. This is who he is. This is what he does. He relents. I wrote it out this way, and I didn't put it here in the text, but man repents, God relents. And we're back to that picture of the Psalms, of the fowler, right? The one with the birdcage, the one who's been capturing things that are meant to fly and just putting them in the cage, closing the door. And that's you, and that's me, in the cage, fluttering about, frustrated, harming ourselves. And then the Lord opens the door. And we, like a bird from the fowler, have escaped. The goodness of God, the goodness of his grace, the goodness of his character, the goodness of his love. This is the God we serve. It was the same God in the days of Jonah as it is today. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you sought to, to set me free from the cage of sin. I did not deserve it. I, I didn't even know what I was getting into when, Lord, when you, when you, I remember you spoke to me those first few times and told me about your forgiveness. But I'm so thankful. And I'm so thankful that these people back in the days of Jonah, the, these Ninevites had a chance to be set free. And I'm so thankful for everyone who's listening to this to know that they also can be set free if they would repent, turn away from evil ways. And if they repent and turn towards you, that you would set them free because of what you've done for them on the cross. You are a good God. You are gracious. You are loving. You are kind. And we praise you tonight. Thank you for setting us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.